listening to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number 19 in the series. Today's episode is titled, The Trojan Horse. Hey folks, uh, just some very, very good news before we continue with this episode. Once you've completed all 20 episodes of Trojan War the Podcast, my sequel podcast, Odyssey the Podcast, is now recorded, ready, and waiting for you. So, another 24 entertaining and engaging hours of history's most awesome epic. You'll find all the details on Odyssey the Podcast waiting for you once you reach the conclusion of Trojan War the Podcast, episode number 20. And now, on with our current episode. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode number 19 of Trojan War the Podcast. I am choosing to title this episode, The Trojan Horse. Now, just a quick recap of where we left things at the end of episode number 18. Well, the Greeks on the beach of Troy are now making their decisions and running Operation Trojan Storm under the direct guidance and governance of Odysseus. This is now, ladies and gentlemen, the Odysseus show. The greatest of the two Greek uh, warlord champions, the, the men from the heroic age, Achilles and Ajax, are now dead. And, well, if the Greeks have any chance of winning this war, it is going to be because of the intellectual offices, the cunning, the, the craftiness, the guile and the wiliness, if you will, of, well, Odysseus, the brains of the operation. Now, Odysseus is quite aware of this position and has recognized as he sat back and taken a look at the situation of the Greeks and the Trojans that... Well, he needs to move fairly quickly to bring the war to a conclusion. And and the reason for this, of course, is that, well, the Trojans aren't going to do anything to bring the war to a quick conclusion. The Trojans have contented themselves with holding up behind their walls, and Odysseus recognizes that no Trojan army will ever come out to fight again. There's not much of an army left, and certainly no leadership inside of the city. So, essentially, the end game for Troy is to hope that the Greeks get tired and go home before the Trojans officially and finally starve to death. But Odysseus, not knowing the food supply situation inside of Troy, knows that that could take a matter of weeks, a matter of months, even up to an entire full year before that inevitable result. And he does not think he has that time for two obvious reasons. And the first reason, of course, is the status of the Greek forces on the beach. You have to remember that the Greek boys have now been on the beach for 10 years away from their homes and loved ones. And from a Greek perspective, well, the last few weeks have not been very good. I mean, sure, the Trojans have lost Paris, but that was no great loss to anybody. But but the Greeks, on the other hand, well, they've lost Achilles and they've lost Ajax. So morale inside of the Greek camp is at, a, at an all-time low. And Odysseus does not want to wait until that morale reaches the stage where bad morale turns into mutiny. And there's another practical problem, of course. And that's it. Well, now that the Greeks have lost Achilles and Ajax, their two foremost fighting champions, there is the distinct possibility that, 
well, allies uh, or potential allies to Troy who have so far been refusing to come and assist Troy in the siege of the Greeks might now recognize that, well, uh, we don't have to worry about the scourge of Achilles or of Ajax landing on our own shores. And there is a possibility that, well, people might come from other parts of the Mediterranean basin to help relieve the city of Troy at this point. So Odysseus wants to bring war to an end before any potential Trojan allies catch wind that the Greeks have now lost their greatest two fighting men. So that brings Odysseus, or brought Odysseus, back to, well, the perennial problem of Troy's walls. How do you find a way to break down those walls and get into the city of Troy where you can destroy those people? And of course, the problem there was that prophecy that every school child in the entire Mediterranean basin grew up reciting by heart, and I will quote it for you yet one more time. The walls of Troy will never be destroyed by an enemy force. Well, Odysseus decided that he was somehow going to have to find a way or some mechanism to thwart or distort or manipulate that prophecy and, well, destroy those walls of Troy. It was the only way to effectively quickly end the war. So Odysseus headed down to his command tent, told his guards to not allow any visitors to enter, and, well, Odysseus, the cleverest of the Greeks, sat down for a good, long, hard think. Now, he kept coming back in his good, long, hard think to the question of that prophecy. And indeed, it appeared as though no enemy force could destroy the walls of Troy. I mean, Odysseus knew that Agamemnon had tried every classic mean of destroying Troy's walls over the last decade. And fire arrows, battering rams, siege engines, tunneling, ladders, nothing had worked so far. But the prophecy continued to bother Odysseus. And that's likely because Odysseus was an intelligent man and recognized that well, prophecies, omens, and the words of oracles. In other words, any time that the powers that be, be it deities or fate and deadly destiny, left messages for human beings about the future, well, Odysseus knew that those messages often tended to be, well, cryptic, dissembling, vague, or in some cases, completely bald-faced lies. So Odysseus examined the prophecy in more detail than he had in the preceding 10 years. Now, we don't know, folks, how long it took Odysseus, how many days he sat in his tent having his big think, before he had that, well, that road to Damascus moment, that moment of revelation, that moment when suddenly, in a blinding flash of insight, Odysseus, with a laugh, recognized that this prophecy indeed contained, well, if you will, a loophole or an escape clause. Listen to the prophecy again. The walls of Troy will never be destroyed by an enemy force. Now, Odysseus had heard that prophecy so many times in his life that he'd never stopped to really think about it. But when he looked at it now, in that blinding moment of insight, he began to wonder about the final phrase in that prophecy, by an enemy force. If the gods were so insistent that Troy's walls would never be destroyed, then why did every schoolchild in the Bronze Age world grow up not learning this prophecy? The walls of Troy will never be destroyed. Period. Full stop. End of prophecy. Why tack on the by an enemy force bit at the end? Well, most people likely just thought it was a rhetorical flourish, but Odysseus, recognizing that that's not the way that the fates or the powers that be or the gods operated, suddenly realized that that by an enemy force qualifier 
really revealed everything. The walls of Troy could be destroyed. The prophecy should have said, just not by an enemy force. And Odysseus, with a combination, I'm sure, of absolute delight plus incredible annoyance that it had taken him 10 years of sitting on the damn beach to finally figure it out, Odysseus recognized that he had discovered the clue to destroying Troy's walls. Certainly the Greeks wouldn't be able to destroy those walls. They were the enemy force. But Odysseus recognized he could get the Trojans if he tried to destroy their very own walls. Well, once Odysseus came up with the concept, he knew with a blinding and absolute certainty that he was correct. Those walls were going to come down, and now it was only a matter of finding a way to convince the Trojan people to actually tear down their own walls. So Odysseus thought, let's go take a look at those walls, and Odysseus, the wiliest, cleverest of the warlords, quietly headed across the Trojan plain and wandered for a full day around the walls of Troy, scouting those walls, if you will, looking for strategic or tactical points of weakness, trying to figure out, well, if I have to convince the Trojans to destroy their walls, where is the best point to do it? Where, in effect, is the most tactically advantaged breach in the wall going to be of use to the Greek armies when they pour into the city? And and after spending a day looking at those walls, it became very, very clear to Odysseus that what he really wanted the Trojans to do was to destroy a section of their wall. They, they didn't need to bring the entire walls of the city down. All that the Greeks really needed was enough room that they could march a considerable body of their army through the walls of the city, and the rest of the walls could stay fully intact as far as Odysseus was concerned. And after looking at all the different strategic places, Odysseus came to the conclusion that the best place to effect a breach inside of Troy's walls, the ideal place, was actually at the Skaean Gates. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the Skaean Gates were the largest gates inside of the city of Troy. They were the grand palatial entrance to the city of Troy, if you will, to massive gates which Agamemnon in the first year of the war had repeatedly smashed battering rams against to absolutely no effect whatsoever. But Odysseus thought, if I'm going to convince the Trojans to destroy a section of their wall, then the section of the wall I need destroyed is that piece of the wall which arches over top of the Skaean gates, on which the Skaean gates actually hang, and which contain the mechanism which opens and closes those massive gates. Odysseus thought, if I can get the Trojans to destroy just that tiny section of their own walls, well, the gates will be flung wide open, impossible to close, and, well, us Greeks will be able to just march in through Troy, through the grand entrance, unopposed. Well, once Odysseus reached that conclusion then, folks, it was only a matter of getting on with, well, the practical matters of logistics and details. Well, we don't know how long it took Odysseus to come up with the famous concept, that concept which we all know about 3,500 years later. But eventually Odysseus decided that what he needed to do was construct a massively large wooden horse. Now, historians down through the ages have argued back and forth with, well, why a wooden horse? Why did, why did Odysseus select to build this large structure in the form of a horse? And there are a couple of different theories out there. I'll just run by you. One of them is that Troy was famous inside of the Eastern Mediterranean as, as a nation which bred and tamed horses. So, so possibly Odysseus creating his large device in the form of a wooden horse would be well, flattering to Trojan vanity. And of course, then there was the late great Prince Hector, who was often referred to in passing as Hector Tamer of Horses. So 
maybe possibly Odysseus thought, well, again, this will appeal to Trojan nationalism if the device which I build and place outside of their walls is in the form of a horse. But the truth of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, we don't really know why Odysseus selected a horse as the form for this little piece of deception he had planned. And the truth of the matter further is that Odysseus's deception was so elaborate that well, the same deception likely could have worked with any other large wooden structure in any other form. We might have been one day in the future been telling the story of the Trojan ox or the Trojan bull or the Trojan goddess or, gods forbid, the Trojan giant rabbit. Any one of them would have been possible, but it was, in the end, a Trojan wooden horse. So Odysseus, deciding on the general concept that he needed, realized that, well, he had the brains, but he certainly didn't have the, well, the mechanical or the construction skills to construct and erect the particular thing which he was going to need. So Odysseus called in a man named Apeus. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Apeus was actually the Greek force's foremost shipwright. Back 10 years ago, Apeus had actually been responsible for the supervision and the construction of that fleet of a thousand ships, a thousand ships that had sailed across the Aegean Sea and besieged the city of Troy. So Apeus was a brilliant shipwright and a master craftsman in his own right. So Odysseus headed down to the tent of Apeus and said, Apeus, you and I have to have a long, quiet and confidential conversation. So the two of them headed down to the seashore and Odysseus briefly outlined to Apeus his needs. Apeus, he said, I need you to build me a structure and uh, ideally I want it in the end in the form of a horse, but here are the design parameters which are absolutely essential. Number one, Apeus, this horse that you build me, it needs to be taller than the height of Troy's main skiing gates. Number two, Apeus, you're going to be building it down by the Greek camp, but it is not going to ultimately rest in the Greek camp. Apeus, the structure you build me will have to be towable. It is somehow going to have to transverse across the Trojan plain and make it right up to those skiing gates. And finally, Apeus, the third thing that is really, really crucial is that this wooden horse you're building me has to be hollow because Apeus, inside of the horse, I'm going to, well, stow away 30 bronze-armed Greek soldiers. So, Apeus, you've got it. It's got to be tall, it's got to be portable, and Apeus, it has to be hollow. Now, do you think you can build me such a structure, Apeus? And more importantly, how long will it take? Well, Apeus, like any master craftsman, told Odysseus he'd need some time. He, he was curious, intrigued, but also really anxious. This was something that had never been built before. So he told Odysseus, give me a day and then uh, come back to my tent again and I'll let you know if it's possible. And uh, the next day when Odysseus returned to Apeus's tent and the two of them headed down to a quiet place on the beach, uh, Apeus brought along a few sticks, found a little bit of sand and essentially outlined his plan to Odysseus. Essentially, what Apeus explained to Odysseus is that if he had to start from scratch, then the project was going to take multiple months uh, if he was going to have to build something like that. But Apeus said, take a look over there, Odysseus. And along the shoreline, of course, the Greeks had pulled in their various galleys, their boats, which they used to move back and forth across the Aegean Sea. And Apeus wandered down to the shore and pointed to two of the, well, smaller galleys inside of the fleet. And Apeus said, now use your imagination, Odysseus. But if I were to take those two galleys, pull them up onto the shore, remove their mast, uh, remove the rigging and all of that sort of thing, essentially what you'd have is you'd have two, well, hollow shells, Odysseus. Now, what if I were to put one of the hollow shells upside down on top of the other so it sort of looked like a clam shell? 
Now, Odysseus, if I did that, what I'd have is I'd have a hollow body. And well, because the seats were already in place in the galley, we could readily put 30 men into those seats. And well, that would be the, if you will, the torso or the belly of your wooden horse. That would be the structurally solid component. And then all I'd really have to do is mount that particular well, series of galleys on top of some scaffolding, which I could then put a exoskeleton around to look like four horse legs. And, and then just using cheap timber from uh, the forests of Mount Ida, I could slap together a, a, a fairly flimsy neck and head for the horse because it wouldn't have to be weight bearing. Uh, then it'd just be a matter of the details, Odysseus. We could, we could gussy it up to make it look more convincing. Uh, it's amazing what you can do with paint, Odysseus. If we gave it some nice bright eyes and used a little bit of coral or mother of pearl and then painted the body of the thing and put on a really impressive horsehair tail, well, you know, it's it's not going to look like a real horse, but it's going to look like a children's play toy rendition of a horse. Would that suit your purposes, Odysseus? Well, Odysseus thought that Apeus was a genius, and he turned around and said, but there is a tiny problem, Apeus. How, how, how are the men how are the men going to get into the belly of the horse? And then more importantly, if I have this horse do as planned, how are they going to effect a departure from the belly of that horse in a hurry? Well, Apeus thought for a moment, and then a huge, naughty grin spread over his face, and he said, I know just the thing. He said, I, I will construct a tiny trap door, and, and, and I'll hide the trap door directly under the horse's tail. So, so your Greek boys, Odysseus, will, will exit the horse via, well, the usual way that things exit the rear of a horse. Apeus found it pretty clever and funny. And then he turned around and on a roll, he said, and, and you know, I, what I'll do is I'll make a fake tail for the horse. And what I'll do is I'll make the tail out of a whole series of ropes. And if if I get my shipwrights who are good at rigging to braid the thing properly, it'll look like a tail from a distance. But if you examine it up close, well, well, that tail will actually double as a rope ladder. So your boys, well, exiting through the horse's ass, if you will, of the trap door, will be able to, well, climb down the, well, the rope ladder of the horse's tail. What do you think? Well, Odysseus was absolutely delighted, but he asked a couple of practical questions. He said, the boys inside, he said, uh, they might be there a while. Uh, are they going to be able to breathe the Apeus? And Apeus explained after a few moments thought that that wouldn't be a problem. He could drill sufficient air holes into, well, the torso of the horse. And then those air holes would be concealed by the neck and the head structure of the horse. But he did caution Odysseus. He said, once the boys are inside and the trap door is closed, well, they are the hulls of ships, Odysseus. They've been pitched and blackened and not let water in so they won't let light in either. Once those boys are inside, they'll have no way whatsoever of knowing whether it's day or night. It won't be very pleasant for them. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we don't know how long it took Apeus to get to work on the horse. We do know that uh, Odysseus turned to Apeus and gave him complete command and control of as many men and resources inside of the Greek army as he needed. He explained to Apeus that this was Agamemnon's project number one and a top priority. And, well, Apeus went to work on building his horse. Now, we have no idea in practical terms how long it took for Apeus to build the horse. There's only actually one record out there in the entire ancient Bronze Age documents that even tells us how long it took. And, and that's from a particular writer writing in the 4th century ACE, a guy named Quintus Sermonus. And, and, and Quintus Sermonus says that the entire thing came together in three days. And, well, I've not read a single historian, uh, architect, or, or builder of wooden horses who has claimed that there's any possible way that three days would be sufficient. So who knows how long Apeus worked down on the beach on the horse. And the other problem, of course, is we really don't know how large the horse is because the only ancient world commentary we have, which actually provides dimensions on the horse, belongs to Virgil. 
And, and Virgil is of absolutely no use at all. Virgil turns around and his information on the height of the horse is as follows, I quote, The horse was tall as a hill. So all we can really do at this point is assume that, well, Apeus got to work and eventually he constructed a horse which was, well, who knows how tall the hill was that Virgil was referring to, but the horse was taller than the height of the top of Troy's Skaying Gates. It had some sort of a roller mechanism which would allow it to be pushed or towed across the Trojan plain, and it could conceal in its belly, via a cleverly concealed trapdoor, 30 bronze-armed Greek soldiers. So, ladies and gentlemen, as we leave Apeus on his construction project, why don't we do as Odysseus did, which was to turn to, well, the other half of the plan. And that, of course, was how to convince the Trojan people, once the horse was actually built, that they should, well, tow this horse into their city and destroy their main gates and walls in the process of doing so. Now, Odysseus knew that trying to convince the Trojan people to do this wasn't going to be an easy thing. The Trojans, well, they were down to their last throws of the dice. Uh, Troy had no army to speak of. There was no leader of Troy. Old King Priam was still the, well, the de facto king of the city, but but the idea of Priam putting on armor in his 80th year and marching out into battle to, to save the people of Troy was just a, a depressing sight for everybody. So, So Troy was really down to relying on well, its walls, because its only other good luck charm, of course, had been, well, that palladium, that little statue to the goddess Athena, which, well, Odysseus and Diomedes had stolen some days earlier. So, so Troy, trying to convince him to, well, accept any form of Greek gift, or including large wooden horses, wasn't going to be easy. So Agamemnon had to be brought in on the plan. Now, Odysseus didn't like doing this. Like most wily, clever guys, he was a little bit of a, a, a control guy himself. And he also recognized in this operation, which was essentially a stealth operation, that the more individuals involved on the real plan, the more likely that word was going to leak out through some, well, Trojan spy embedded inside of the Greek army. But ultimately, Agamemnon needed to be brought into the plan. So when the horse neared the conclusion of its construction... Odysseus took Agamemnon way down the seashore and the two of them had a private conversation. Now, Odysseus let Agamemnon know that, well, they were going to have to deceive the Trojans into letting down their intellectual guard. Uh, the Trojans didn't have brilliant leadership anymore, but the people inside of that city weren't suicidal. And Odysseus said, we're, we're going to have to play mind games with them. We are going to have to convince them that they don't have to worry about us anymore. And Agamemnon, what that means is we're going to have to get the entire Greek army off of this beach. Because Agamemnon, if we just complete this horse and, well, then secrete, you know, 30 warriors inside it and tow it across the plain and tack a note to the outside saying, uh, sorry about your palladium, our mistake. Uh, Athena insisted that we give you a replacement statue. Here it is. Have a nice day, signed the Greek invading force. Well, well, the Trojans weren't complete fools, Odysseus said, and they'd be even less fools if they saw 100,000 hungry Greek eyes staring back at them, watching and waiting to see what they were going to do with that gift. So Odysseus said, Agamemnon, we are going to have to convince the Trojans that we Greeks have run away home and that the war is over. And that, of course, means, Agamemnon, that we're going to have to convince the Greek soldiers of the very same thing. Agamemnon, you are going to have to announce an end to Operation Trojan Storm. Agamemnon, you are going to have to formally declare the mission a bust and a failure, then load the boys up onto the boats. 
with the belief that the boys are going home. Any other plan, any other whispers, any other nudge-nudge hint-hints to the Greek army, and eventually the Trojans will find out and everything will fall apart. Well, Agamemnon understood the reason for Odysseus's secrecy, but he was in some degree of despair. He, he turned to Odysseus and, well, stated the obvious. He said, listen, Odysseus, you know the mental state of these boys on the beach. They've been here for 10 years, and Odysseus, I promised them all a bar of gold. I promised them Trojan treasure 10 years ago, and... Well, Odysseus, if I launch the fleet now, if I declare Operation Trojan Storm at Boston, sail out of this harbor here back to home, well, Odysseus, I'll have a mutiny in my hand. I'll have absolutely no control of the fleet at all. Odysseus, I'll be lucky to make it home with my life, as will the other warlords. What are we going to do? Well, at this point, Odysseus could provide some comfort and advice to Agamemnon. He said, listen, all you really need to do is perpetuate the lie until you have every Greek man onto the boat and far enough away from shore that they can't possibly swim back and warn the Trojans even if they were so inclined. No, Agamemnon, I've scouted. There's an island right at the entrance of the bay. It's called the island of Tenedus. It's only a seven-mile row, Agamemnon. If the boys go at full speed, they'll be there in an hour. Agamemnon, all you're really going to do is pull the boys out onto their boats. You row away for about 30, 45 minutes. You gather the fleet together. You tell the boys what the real plan is. You can then tell them about the belly of the wooden horse and about the soldiers inside. And then, Agamemnon, well, you just hide your fleet behind that island of Tenedus. The Trojans won't be able to see you, but from the top of that island, you will be able to see signal fires from the walls of Troy. So in the day we do this, Agamemnon, all you have to do is sit tight behind the island, wait for dark, wait till you see signal fires from the wall of Troy, which means that we're inside and we have control of at least a section of the wall, and then, Agamemnon, you roll back in the dark as hard and as fast as you dare. You beat your boats, you marshal the forces up, and Agamemnon, if the plan goes according to plan, the Skyene gates will be wide open, jammed wide open, in fact, and the entire population of Troy will be sound asleep, drunk, or hungover. Taking this city will be a cakewalk, Agamemnon. Well, Agamemnon paused. It all sounded very good and convincing when Odysseus said it. But then he asked, of course, the critical and burning question. But what if the Trojans don't fall for the deception, Odysseus? What if they don't believe the plan? What if they decide to do something else instead and they don't tow the horse into the city? What am I supposed to do with my army behind my island then? Well, Odysseus listened for a moment, reflected, then, well, provided Agamemnon with a rather grim laugh. You can do whatever you want at that stage, Agamemnon. It'll hardly matter to me, because I'll be dead by then. You see, Agamemnon, I fully intend to be one of the 30 men inside of the belly of that horse. But don't you worry. It means I have a particularly vested interest in ensuring that the plan works properly, Agamemnon. I want to go home to my wife and kid as badly as the rest of us. Don't worry, Agamemnon. I'm leaving absolutely nothing to chance. And so, ladies and gentlemen, the plan was hatched. Now, at this stage, Odysseus recognized that he needed another player. A particular player with a particular skill set. Somebody was going to have to verbally convince the Trojans that the wooden horse was actually something that they should bring into the walls of their city. And that was going to require a piece of masterful lying. 
Now, the thing that bothered Odysseus the most at this stage in the operation is he rightly recognized that the best man for the job was, well, himself. He knew that he could pass off the lie and convince the Trojans, save for the problem that, well, after 10 years on the beach, Odysseus was the wiliest of the Greeks. Not only the Greeks, but the Trojans knew that. So Odysseus essentially needed to find, well, a doppelganger of himself, another man inside of the Greek army who had the same wordsmith ability, the same ability at lying, cunning, deception, and, well, storytelling, if you will, that Odysseus had, but also a complete unknown, a nobody. So Odysseus went looking for just such a man. His strategy was fairly simple. He didn't spend any time with the warlords. They were too well known to the Trojans. So instead, for the next few days, Odysseus wandered around the campsites of the common Greek foot soldiers. And, and, and he sat in on their games of chance and dice, uh, a, a place where having the ability to lie, to BS, to con, to look a man straight in the face and tell him one thing when you truly believe another is actually a useful asset. And well, after a few days of watching the men playing dice and their games of chance, Odysseus had asked around and discovered that by general consensus, the best BS expert, the best liar, the best con artist in the entire assembled Greek camp was an old coot named Sinon. Now, Sinon was in his late 50 years old. He was a camp cook, not even a soldier. He was a complete nobody, a, a balding old guy with about eight remaining teeth. Well, Odysseus decided that Sinon was perfect for the job. So Odysseus approached Sinon one day as Sinon sat rolling the dice and accumulating his winning and spinning his lies. And Odysseus turned to Sinon and said, uh, come with me. And Sinon, following the warlord, headed down the beach to a quiet place. And at that stage, Odysseus turned around with a twinkle in his eye and asked Sinon if Sinon had any interest in winning eternal fame and glory for himself as the man who had single-handedly convinced the Trojans to tear down their own walls. And Sinon's response delighted Odysseus. Sinon's first reply was, so what's the catch? There's always a catch, Odysseus. And of course, that knew in Odysseus's mind that he had the right man for the operation. So Odysseus filled Sinon in on his plan for the horse and somehow convincing the Trojan people that the horse needed to be towed inside of the city. And then he and Sinon spent a few pleasant days delighted together, their heads huddled together down by the beach, while essentially doing what storytellers, liars, and BS experts love to do, which is hatch new and plausible plots. Well, by the end of a few days, Odysseus and Sinon had Sinon's backstory, his cover story, and his explanations all very well rehearsed and acted out, and then it was simply a matter of waiting for Epeus to finish completion of the horse. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that day came. We don't know when, but that day came. And on the day that the horse was completed, Epeus gave Odysseus a nod, Odysseus gave Agamemnon a nod, Agamemnon stood up and he announced that he had received a dream from the goddess Athena. Now, the dream, Agamemnon explained, told the Greeks that Athena was very, very upset with them. Athena did not like the idea that the Greeks had first, A, stolen her statue of the Palladium from Troy, and then, B, inadvertently or deliberately managed to destroy said statue, and the goddess Athena was quite unhappy with the Greeks. But don't despair, Agamemnon explained to the very legitimately worried Greek troops. Athena is giving us an opportunity to make amends. Here's all we have to do. We have to build a replacement statue for the Palladium. And because Athena is angry with us, she insists that the new statue, the new Palladium, be much more glorious and wonderful than the one that we stole and accidentally destroyed. So boys, 
you'll look down on the beach and see that my man Apeus has been working on a statue for the longest time. And that statue, that glorious wooden horse that you see standing there, is actually our gift to Athena. That is the replacement for the Palladium boys. Well, the soldiers looked at it, and none of them, at least out loud, dared doubt uh, Athena's aesthetic taste. What was the goddess going to do with a large children's wooden pole toy on the beach? But uh, nobody in the Greek or the Trojan army, for that matter, spent too much time worrying about or discerning the, well, the vagaries and the wills of the gods. They were much more interested in what Agamemnon had to say next. And that's when, of course, Agamemnon announced that he had decided that Operation Trojan Storm was over. Athena had told him that she would guarantee the Greeks' safe passage back to their homelands. Their homecomings were guaranteed. So Agamemnon announced, the statue is done. I can give you the good news, boys. We are heading home right now. Break camp. We are on the water in an hour. Well, we have absolutely no record of how the Greek soldiers responded to this news. Uh, we can assume that it was a mixture of joy. They were finally going home with their skins and then some degree of realization that they had just wasted 10 years of their life and had absolutely no Trojan treasure to show for it. But the Greeks somehow managed to break camp, get onto their boats and began to sail away. Now, while they were doing it, and while they were distracted, of course, Apeus was busy, well, cutting that final little bit of the plan, the trap door, into the backside of the Trojan horse. And those men, as Agamemnon entertained the troops with his stories, the crack troops that were going to actually occupy the belly of that horse quietly climbed inside. The trap door was sealed, and then, well, that horse sat there and waited for the Trojans to tow it across the plain. Well, the Greeks sailed away. The Trojans, watching from their walls, well, who knows what they were feeling. It would have been, of course, immediate relief when they thought the entire Greek army is leaving. And, and then a sense of celebration. It looked as though they might possibly, just possibly, have survived the war and even won. And, and of course, as soon as the Greek last boat was out of sight and well and truly on its way back to Greece, the Trojans thought, well... Then there was the curiosity of that strange statue of a wooden horse down by the Greek camp. And as Odysseus and Sinon had assumed would happen, curiosity took the better of the Trojans and a delegation of Trojans, uh, including the entire royal family, the remaining princes, uh, old King Priam, uh, priests, and then a well-armed contingent of soldiers headed down, surrounded that wooden horse and stared up at it. And ladies and gentlemen, a fierce debate broke out inside of the Trojans looking up at that huge impossible statue on well, what it meant and what to do with it. Now, the debate really fell into two basic camps. There were Trojans, uh, the sensible, prudent, cautious Trojans, who essentially turned around and said, listen, it was designed by the Greeks, it was built by the Greeks, it was left here by the Greeks, and therefore it is Greek, and therefore we should summarily destroy it. And they were all for like piling brushwood underneath the wooden horse and setting it on flame right away. But then there was the other camp, the more cautious Trojans, or maybe the Trojans which had a greater degree of aesthetic sensibility, who knows, and they looked at this improbable but strangely magnificent statue down there in the beach, and well, they argued two things. Number one, they said, well, we don't know its true meaning or purpose, so we, we, we don't want to destroy it until our priests have discerned what it really means. We don't want to make a mistake and offend some deity, and, and number two, well, it, it's kind of aesthetically pleasing. It would, be, it would be a real shame to set it on fire right away if, if, if there's no really good reason 
reason to do so, and, well, the debate raged back and forth inside of the Trojan camp as Priam, the old king, who seemed to be the only person who was going to be able to ultimately make the executive decision, sat there and listened to both sides. But as that debate rages, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's important for me as your storyteller to digress from the Trojan debate and invite you to briefly pause with me and consider the situation or the status of those Greek soldiers now in the belly of the famous Trojan horse. And the reason that I want to pause and tell those Greek soldiers' story is well, I want to try to correct, if you will, a, a, a historical libel against the poor Greeks invading the city of Troy. And, well, the reason for that libel is fairly simple. Our most authoritative and canonical source of the story of the entire wooden horse episode is actually passed down to us by the Roman epic writer Virgil, writing, well, in the, in the very first century A.C.E., in his masterpiece, The Aeneid, uh, Rome's foundational epic, if you will, and for Virgil's own political and polemic reasons, well, when Virgil tells the story of the wooden horse, which he does incredibly wonderfully in Book Two of The Aeneid, Virgil tends to, well, gloss over the story of the Greek soldiers inside of that horse and instead focus his story on the response of the Trojans on the plain. And Virgil, throughout the balance of his epic story, tends to, well, not be very charitable in his treatment of the Greeks. He, he sees the Greeks as liars, dissemblers, con artists, and cheats. And the wooden horse, well, Virgil sees it as an example, if you will, or an exemplar of Greek cunning, deceit, generally unheroic ways of assuming or taking or attacking cities. And, and, and well, that seems to be the version of the story that's come down to us. Uh, very, very few tellers spend any time talking about the experience of the Greek man inside the belly of that horse. So allow me just for the sake of balance, if you will, 3,000 years later to spend a bit of time while reviewing those men's situation. And here's what we know. 30 men voluntarily entered the belly of that horse. Uh, among them, the names that we know from our story so far are Diomedes, Philoctetes, Odysseus, of course, and, and, and then a new guy I'll mention because he'll come up later, a guy named Neoptolemus. Now think about the situation of those 30 men inside the belly of that dark horse. Let's review the best case scenario first. The best scenario, of course, is that Sinon manages to do his work well, plant the lie. The Trojans believe the lie. They tow the horse up to the walls of Troy. They realize it's too tall. They summarily knock down an archway over the Skyim gate, and they pull the horse into the city and leave it there. That's the best case scenario. And even under that scenario, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to imagine what it was like for the men inside of that horse. They have no idea whether it's day or night. It's pitch black inside of the horse and pretty stuffy. Those men are going to have to count or estimate or somehow guesstimate until they think it's dark, and then they're going to have to effect a departure from that horse by opening the tiny trap door and, one at a time in single file, climbing down a precariously and perilously high rope ladder to the ground, wearing full bronze armor. Now, if the Trojans have mounted even a nominal, solitary, alert guard at the base of that wooden horse, ladies and gentlemen then that guard will certainly see the bronze-armored Greeks clambering down the rope ladder and then picking those Greeks off with a bow and arrow one at a time as a single file clamber down the ladder would be child's play. The Greeks will die for sure. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's the best case possible scenario. That's a scenario where the Trojans actually buy Simon's upcoming lie. Now, let's look at the worst case scenarios. Worst case scenario number one. The Trojan debate over what to do about the horse doesn't take hours, and instead it takes days or, God forbid, up to a week. Now, you have to recognize that the men inside the body of that horse have been equipped by Epias, the, the architect of the horse, with two leather bags. One contained water, the other empty bag was for urine, but that was about it. There was no food inside of the horse, there was no room for it, and you didn't want the sound of men eating. Next, the interior of that horse was going to be blazing hot, standing there in the hot Mediterranean sun. There was some air, but not very much. And you have to recognize that those bronze-armed warriors were wearing bronze armor. Now, Odysseus had thought this through, and he recognized that the armor was going to give them away if swords and shields and armor clattered against it. So not only were the men wearing bronze armor, before they had entered the horse, they had all been wrapped in soft cloth. They looked like no more than a series of 30 Egyptian mummies, and the purpose of the cloth, of course, was to dampen any, well, revealing clanks or clanging sounds coming from the belly of what was not supposed to be a hollow horse. Then there was the problem of possible claustrophobia. You put 30 individuals into a space like that in the dark for an unlimited amount of time and inevitably one or two men in that group are suddenly going to discover for the very first time in their life that, well, they are victims of the terrible thing that is claustrophobia. And those men, of course, are then going to try to scream, shout, or get out of the horse as quickly as possible. They will not be able to control themselves. Now, Odysseus had foreseen this possibility and not knowing which men would fall victim to the claustrophobia, Odysseus had equipped each man of the 30 with a short, tiny, silk-covered dagger with a ridiculously sharp blade. The men inside of the horse sat in single file in a long row, and Odysseus instructed each man to keep his dagger handy, and if the man sitting in front of him started to scream, cry out, cough, choke, or in any way leave the horse before the proper time, then the man behind him was to slit that man's windpipe as quickly as possible. And if you don't kill him, Odysseus said, you will be dooming us all. And then, of course, folks, there was the absolute worst case, and that was that somehow their deception was revealed. The Trojans recognized that the horse contained Greek warriors, and then, of course, the Trojan would have summarily set that horse on fire, and, well, the men inside would have burned to death slowly without any hope at all of getting out. So to conclude, was the Trojan horse a deception? Yes. Was the Trojan horse a dirty trick? Well, yes, if you subscribe to those particular rules of warfare. Was the Trojan horse singularly unheroic? Absolutely. This was definitely a product of the Iron Age of men. But was the Trojan horse cowardly? Well, absolutely not, if you were one of the 30 men who had voluntarily stepped into that horse's belly. So, that in place, back to our debate, which is still raging between the Trojans on what to do with the horse. The debate really got nowhere until about an hour and a half into the debate, a Trojan priest, a, a guy named Lacoon, arrived down at the shore and beside the horse, accompanied by his two young sons. 
Well, Lacoon listened to the debate for a few moments, and Lacoon was certainly not swayed by anybody who suggested saving the horse or, or anybody who suggested bringing the horse into the city. Lacoon turned around, and Lacoon, well, his views on the horse are so clear and so articulate that the actual words that Lacoon spoke to the fellow Trojans have survived down to our present century. So allow me to read you word for word Lacoon the priest's advice to his countrymen concerning the Trojan horse. I quote, Oh, unhappy citizens, what madness! Do you think the enemy has sailed away? Or do you think any Greek's gift to be free of treachery? Is that Odysseus's reputation? Either there are Greeks in hiding, concealed by the wood, or it's been built as a machine to use against our walls, or to spy on our homes, or to fall on the city from above or it hides some other trick. Trojans, do not trust this horse. Whatever it is, I fear Greeks, even those bearing gifts. And, well, that iconic phrase, at least in the English language, has made it down through the centuries in a somewhat modified form of beware of Greeks bearing gifts. And, well, Lacombe's advice that the, the horse was hollow, uh, well, Lacone at that moment decided to prove his advice. He, he, he picked up a, a spear and thought, well, what I'll do is I will just thrust the spear at full force into the belly of the horse, and if there's something inside, it'll likely pierce the person inside. They'll let out a cry, and then we'll know. So Lacone picked up and grabbed a soldier's spear, but unfortunately for Lacone, or fortunately, depending on whose side you're on in this particular war, Lacone was no soldier. He was a priest, and so when he hurled the spear, it didn't go with any accuracy and force, and instead of puncturing the wood, where it likely would have done no damage, it it struck the side of the horse sideways at full spear length, and, well, a huge echoey resounding, well, echo of something hollow resonated across the Trojan plain, and at that point, every Trojan on the beach turned and recognized that this wooden horse was hollow, and Lacone was right. At this point, The whole plan was in peril. But fortunately, this was the point where Sinon, Odysseus's carefully trained liar and BS artist, was waiting for his entrance into the con. Sinon had been close enough that he had been able to pick up on the conversation, and when he saw Lacan throw the spear at that horse and he heard the resounding echoey sound, Sinon sprang into action. And if you were a Trojan, here's what you saw. You suddenly saw a a Greek man beat black and blue with bruises, suffering badly, cuts and gashes all over his face, uh, likely broken ribs, and, and covered in something horrifyingly smelly, staggering, well, tied up and bound across the Trojan plain towards the Trojan standing below that horse, screaming and crying and howling and half insane, begging for mercy. And that, of course, was our boy, Sinon in full theatrical mode. Well, Sinon made it up to the Trojans. He got close because Priam and the priests wanted wanted to interview Sinon. They wanted to find out his story. Did he know anything about this horse? And, and Sinon had his opportunity to essentially well plant his lie. And the lie that Sinon planted was very convincing. Sinon turned around and explained that 
He was a Greek. He was just a common cook inside of the camp. But that some years ago, he had prepared a meal for Odysseus. And, well, maybe there had been some bad fish or something inside of that meal. And, well, Odysseus had, had, had got a rather nasty poisoned stomach flu for a few days and blamed Sinon for it. And Sinon said, I didn't think anything of it until, well, the day before we Greeks decided to go home, Agamemnon announced that he had he had received this, this vision from the goddess Athena. And at that point, as the Greeks were saying, away, it suddenly occurred to Odysseus that they needed to do something to ensure that they had safe wind passage in the way home. And Sinon went on to explain that, well, Odysseus reasoned that they had used a human sacrifice to get the winds to blow the boats to Troy. So in an act of symmetry, Sinon explained, Odysseus had decided that he would sacrifice another human being to get the winds to drive them safely home. And Sinon turned around and said, and at that point, Odysseus remembered that I had given him a bad piece of fish a few years ago. And Odysseus, who never forgets a slight, decided that I would be the perfect expendable camp sacrifice. After all, who needs a 55-year-old toothless cook? So, Sinon said, he had been prepared for human sacrifice, but Odysseus had been briefly distracted, and Sinon explained that he had managed to leap at that point into the soldier's latrine trench and hide there in the stinking waste until the last of the Greek boats had sailed away. And then he had clambered out, and that explained why he was beaten, bound, black and blue, and smelling rather stinky. Well, the lie worked. It certainly worked well enough that at that point Priam turned around and Priam, a kind-hearted, doddering old man, said, you poor man. And after the Trojans took a moment to, well, wash Sinon down with a bucket of water and give him something to eat and unbind his hands, they turned around to Sinon and they said, well, okay, can you tell us anything about this wooden horse? And, and Sinon, now with the benefit of a captive audience, planted his lie. He turned around and he explained, well, that the Greek were intending to sail for home, but that Athena was angry about them for destroying Troy's Palladium, uh, the statue to the goddess Athena, and Athena had required that the Greeks build a replacement statue and that it was to be truly magnificent. And Sinon went on to explain that therefore the Greeks had decided to build this glorious wooden horse. Well, Sinon said, Athena is very delighted with our gift and therefore has promised the Greeks their homecomings. They will make it safely across the Aegean Sea. Well, at that point, Prime had turned around and said, well, that's some good news. At least the Greeks have gone home. And Sinod shaken his head and sighed and said, I'm so sorry, but that's not what's really happening. Agamemnon has not ended Operation Trojan Storm. He has simply sailed across the Aegean Sea for reinforcements. Next spring, there's another 50,000 young men coming back. You have to realize that, well, this operation launched 10 years ago, and there's a whole lot of boys who were only 10 or 11 years old when the entire thing started a decade ago who are now in prime fighting form and eager for their hand against the Trojan forces. Agamemnon's coming back in the spring, King Priam. Well, and you have to imagine how psychologically devastating that would have been for the Trojan people. They'd survived 10 years of war. They thought they were finally safe. And, and now here was a man who had absolutely no reason to lie at all, turning around and saying that the Greeks weren't leaving. They had just headed back to reprovision and to come back with 50,000 young, new, eager fighting men. The siege of Troy was going to continue on. So Priam, turning around in desperation, looked at Sinon and said, well, is there anything we can do? Is there anything we can do? Is there any hope at all? And 
Sinon, sighing for a moment and shaking his head, considered and then said, well, we do know that Athena cautioned us that if, if the horse somehow made it inside the walls of the city and it, it, it actually got inside of her temple in the city, beside where the Palladium was, then Athena would feel that she had no choice but to actually favor you Trojans in the war and that us Greeks would summarily drown at sea. Now, of course, they'd said this, every Trojan's ears perked up, but Sinon said, but I'm sorry, King Priam, I don't have good news for you. Odysseus heard Athena's caution and consequently built the horse far too high for your largest gate. He did his measuring careful, King Priam. You're not going to be able to get that horse into your city. It's going to sit here on the plain. So I fear that you Trojans are, well, basically damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you don't get the horse inside of your city... Well, the Greeks have safe passage home and they're coming back. And if you burn the horse, if you destroy it, well, that will make the goddess Athena very angry and she will smite you all. So I really don't know what you should do. And I'd help you, trust me, because I hate Odysseus, I hate his son, and may he, his son, and his generations of children for the next ten all rot in Hades. Then Sinon spat theatrically on the ground, stepped back, and hoped that he had sufficiently planted a convincing lie. Well, most of the Trojans were happy with this lie. They believed it. It worked for them, but not the wily old priest Lacan. And Lacan turned around at that point, looked at Sinon and said, You're a Greek. I do not, as policy, trust Greeks. Therefore, before we make any decision on the horse, we will consult our own gods. We will consult our own auguries. We will find out the truth of this horse, not from some damned lying Greek, but from an honorable Trojan. And it looked as though Lacan was going to win the day, because those ogres, of course, would have told the Trojans the truth of the contents in the belly of that horse. But, ladies and gentlemen, you and I are not the only people witness to this conversation. Up on Mount Olympus, the Olympian deities have been sitting in and watching this pivotal moment in the story with the great delight that they've been taking in the entire Trojan War epic to date. And as those deities listen into the plans, the deities suddenly recognize that the Trojan priest Lacan was about to, well, thwart the plans for Troy. The plans for Troy decided upon either by Zeus or by fate and deadly destiny. Those plans were now threatened. So at that point, one deity sitting in the throne room at Mount Olympus stood up and took action. And that deity who acted on that day was none other than the god Poseidon. And at this point, I have to bring you back, all the way back, folks, to episode two of Trojan War the Podcast, an episode I titled The Torch. Now, you'll remember that I opened that episode by telling you the story of Troy before its walls were built and how a king of that city, a particular king named Laomedon, had been visited one day by a man he had never met before who simply referred to himself as the Builder. And the Builder had explained to King Laomedon that Troy would prosper and become the most powerful city in the entire eastern end of the Mediterranean world if Troy had the most spectacular, powerful, and insurmountable walls in the entire Mediterranean world. And further, the Builder said, I can build you those walls, King Laomedon, in under a year. Well, Laomedon had been interested. He and the Builder had haggled for a while and finally agreed upon the Builder's fee upon completion of the walls. And the Builder, good as his word, had gone to work. And within a year, Troy had the most amazing and miraculous walls that the world had ever seen, complete with three glorious gates. Then the Builder had stepped into Laomedon's throne room to collect his fee. 
and Laomedon had ripped off the builder, found a way to give the builder absolutely nothing. In fact, he gave the builder a bill for services rendered. The builder, with steely gray eyes, had turned to Laomedon and said, Are you really sure you wish to proceed in this manner, my king? And Laomedon, with a avaricious grin in his face, said, I am absolutely certain I wish to proceed this way. And the builder, with a smile, had walked away from Troy. Now, the builder, of course, we know, was Poseidon, god of the sea, and Poseidon, god of the sea, on that day, had quietly sworn his revenge on the city of Troy. And Poseidon, god of the sea, being an immortal, knew that revenge is a dish best served very, very cold indeed. And so Poseidon, god of the sea, had waited and waited and waited until he had an opportune and well-poetic moment to destroy the people of Troy and their glorious walls. And now such a moment had arrived. So with a grin, Poseidon directed two large sea snakes, two gigantic serpents, to slither up from the beach, from the former place of the Greek camp, slither, well, dramatically and frighteningly across the Trojan plain, then coil themselves around Lacon the priest, his two young sons, and slowly choke the three of them to death. Then the serpents, having killed Lacon and his children, slithered through the open Skaean gate to the temple of Athena, slithered inside, and set up permanent residence there. Well, no sign could have been more clear to the Trojans watching this. It was very, very obvious that Lacon had blasphemed. He had, he, he, he had not only said horrible things about Athena and her statue, but he had had the temerity to strike it with his sword. And now the deities, of course, were punishing Lacon for, well, for this blasphemy. The, the signal was very clear. And the fact then that the snakes had actually entered Troy and taken up residence in the former home of the Palladium made it very, very clear that what the gods wanted the Trojans to do was to well, tow that statue of the wooden horse directly through their gates and set it up as close to the, well, Temple of Athena as was possible given its size and stature. And all debate on the Trojan horse and its contents came to an abrupt and absolute and certain end. While Priam, flushed with enthusiasm and feeling 25 years younger than he had in the last 10 years, turned around and with a whoop of joy gave the order. He said, call out all the citizens of Troy, call out the boys, call out the army, grab ropes, we will tow this horse across the plain as quickly as possible, we will get it up to our gates, we will bring it into the city. And they did just that. And of course, when they got the wooden horse up to the Skyen gates, well, Odysseus's measurements have been precise and Though the horse was narrow enough to fit through the width of the wide open gates, the horse was too tall by about three meters or ten feet to make it through that huge archway over top of the gates. Now the prudent thing to do at this stage would have been to have essentially called in the Trojan carpenters and removed the very flimsy neck and head of the Trojan horse, carefully disassembled it, and then brought the horse in two parts into the city. But, well, after that incident with the serpents and the fact that a god had punished Lacon for, for the temerity of even throwing a spear at the side of the horse, well, there wasn't a carpenter inside of Troy who had any interest whatsoever in disassembling this glorious statue even temporarily. Which meant the only other option was to disassemble the stone archway on which the mighty skying gates were hanging. 
So the masons and, and, and the craftsmen crawled up to the top of the archway. First of all, they carefully disassembled the elaborate gate opening and closing mechanism on top of that archway. Uh, Troy's gates, their skying gates, were going to be jammed into the open position for a little while. And well, then the masons chipped away and within a matter of a couple of hours, they had effected of enough of a breach inside of the skying gates that the horse could barely and just narrowly make it through those gates without scratching the horse or in any way touching on its paint job. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, the mighty horse was towed into the city of Troy. Don't worry about the gates, the, the mason and the architects and the craftsmen all pointed out. Uh, what we'll do is, well, we'll tow the horse into the city now, and then tomorrow morning at first light, well, what we'll do is we'll reassemble the masonry and we'll reassemble the open and closing mechanism. The, the, the gates of Troy will be open for, well, only one evening, and we have no fears. Our enemy, the Greeks, the only people who might want to walk through those open gates are miles and miles away on their way home, and, well, given that we have now got the horse inside the walls of our city, Athena, the goddess, has now drowned them all at sea. So Priam turned around, he smiled, he called the people of Troy together, and he announced that the war was over, the siege was over, and that Troy and the people of Troy were safe. And the horse was towed to the statue of the goddess Athena. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, that is where I have to leave this episode of Trojan War, the podcast. It's the only possible place where I possibly could leave an episode with a horse inside of the city and us sitting on a cliffhanger on what is going to happen next. So at this stage, of course, you have the usual and standard options. Some of you are going to immediately want to get over to episode number 20 and find out what happens from this point forward in the story. Those of you who choose to stick around, well, what I'm going to be doing is well, asking that rather burning and important question of, was there ever really a Trojan horse? And if there was, what was it? Now, if you want to stick with the canonical account of the story, if you absolutely love the account which I've told you, which is essentially Virgil and Homer's account of the story, well, then you might want to depart at this point, because what I'm going to talk about in the post-story commentary is all the other accounts. On the other hand, you might want to stick around because some of the theories about this wooden horse are absolutely mind-blowing and I think you'll have an awful lot of fun. So for some of you, it's goodbye and for the rest of us, we'll pick things up in a few moments. So just before we launch into the post-story commentary, I'd like to share an idea with you. I think I've mentioned a few times over the series of the podcasts that I make my living as a public performer. Now, sometimes my public performances are over on the storyteller end of the spectrum, but just as often they're on the public speaker side. Now, after 19 episodes of Trojan War, the podcast, you've had the opportunity to hear me in both my storyteller guise during the first part of every episode and in my public speaker guise during the post-story commentaries. And you've seen how the lines between those two roles can get pretty blurry sometimes. So onto my idea. I would love to travel to your town or your city, wherever you live in the world, and perform for you. Either tell you a story, offer you a lecture, or blur the two of them together. Now, many of you listening are part of organizations, institutions, businesses, that sort of thing, that stage conferences, symposiums, lecture series, festivals, guided travel tours. And if you are planning an event where you need an enthusiastic and engaging public performer that, well, might enhance said event, I just might be the person you're looking for. Now, sometimes when I perform in public, my audiences are small and the venue intimate. 
But a lot of the time, my audience's number in the hundreds, and the venue is fairly formal. Only recently, for example, I sold out a live storytelling show at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa, Canada. So I'm used to performing to sophisticated adult audiences. But the truth is, I'm equally at home holding the interest and attention of an auditorium full of teenagers. So if you were to invite me, what could I do? Well, anything really that your organization, your institution, your business requires, so long as it links in, well, some way to the stories or the commentaries that have come up at, well, some point in Trojan War the podcast. I've become pretty adept at tailoring my performances and my content to the needs of my audience. By way of example, I've told episodes of this epic straight up as a performance storyteller. Other times, I've offered entertaining and thought-provoking keynote speeches on, well, Greek epic, mythology, and all things Trojan War. And occasionally, I've even blended the above two into a story lecture series, which I delivered live each evening to students and tourists on a cruise ship in the Aegean Sea. So I'm pretty flexible with what sort of speaking engagement you might well engage me for. So, if the idea piques your interest, your curiosity, your imagination, send me a note, and we can explore possibilities from there. My website, trojanwarpodcast.com, includes a contact page, and that's the best way to reach me to start just such a conversation. And now, on to the post-story commentary. Now, I told you that what we were going to do in this commentary was play around with that burning question of, was there ever really a Trojan horse? And the quick, immediate answer to that question is, well, of course there was. Because Homer tells us there was a Trojan horse, and Virgil tells us there was a Trojan horse, and if you are not going to believe those two brilliant storytellers, those two master writers of epic, then, well, what's the freaking point of even having a conversation anyway? So that's your starting point, and if you agree with that starting point, then what you might want to do is, well, turn off the balance of the post-story commentary and content yourself with the views of Homer and Virgil, because in the balance of this post-story commentary, I'm going to be, well, somewhat deconstructing some of their particular accounts of the wooden horse. So let's just really quickly review Homer and Virgil before we go on. And as you know, Homer, his account appears not in the Iliad, because the Iliad ends with the death of Hector. So Homer's account of the Trojan horse shows up in his sequel to the Iliad, the Odyssey. Now, we know that the Odyssey was written down by Homer or Homer's sometime circa 750 BCE, so about 500 or so years after, well, the possible day of the fall of King Priam's Troy. And in terms of Virgil's Aeneid, well, Virgil's Aeneid was actually penned sometime around, well, 20 BCE. And just as I'm thinking about it now, I, I think I likely erred inside of my storytelling and got Virgil's date of the Aeneid off by somewhere between 50 and 75 years. So you Virgil scholars out there who caught me, well, I have now caught myself. Please forgive my earlier transgression. Now, both Virgil and Homer, when they tell the story of the wooden horse, use the same plot device. They account the story of the wooden horse from the eyewitness perspective of somebody who was there on the day of the wooden horse. So uh, Homer essentially in his uh, Odyssey in book four, and then again later in book eight, turns around and has two different eyewitnesses who I can't tell you because of, well, the whole no plot spoilers guarantee thing I have going. Well, those two eyewitnesses talk about what it was like to be inside the horse and 
from inside the horse what it was like to listen to the Trojans debating the horse. Virgil does something different. His eyewitness is actually a Trojan, and we get a completely different perspective on it. Virgil tends to focus on the particular viewpoint and perspective of the debate and the dialogue happening inside of the Trojan camp. Now, in terms of the stories that have come down to us, the sort of canonical, if you will, story of the wooden horse, essentially the story I told you with a few of my own particular creative embellishments when I thought that there were gaps in the plot. Well, the canonical story is largely derived from Virgil, because Virgil being a storyteller like Homer and like myself, well, Virgil had the advantage of, well, having a thousand years of post-real Trojan War story accounts to draw on before he sat down to pen his account inside of the Aeneid. So those are the official views of the story. Now let's get on to, well, the big problem, which is the naysayers. And even as early as the 2nd century ACE, there were documented cases that we have of, of doubt. The non-wooden horse believers, or the non-believers in the wooden horse, I suppose. And the non-believers essentially fall into two camps. So I'm going to quickly review the two camps and the primary arguments inside of them. So the non-believers in camp number one essentially could be called the mechanical and logistical issues non-believers. And these individuals, and they're myriad all over the internet, essentially have two critical arguments. And argument number one goes like this. These people say, well, listen, building the structure as described by, well, either by Homer or by Virgil, this structure would have been absolutely massive and it would have, as a consequence, taken some considerable time to build. And you have to imagine the situation that a structure of this particular height and width and girth being built out on the Trojan plain, a definitionally flat area, would have been clearly, clearly apparent and visible to the Trojans, particularly from their vantage point high on the walls of Troy. So the Trojans would have had weeks, possibly even months, of witnessing the construction of this particular mechanical beast. And we have to credit the Trojans with a certain amount of intellect and ingenuity. They very, 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 very quickly would have recognized that the thing being constructed was hollow and, well, they would have deduced what was going on in one fashion or another. So, so these critics argue that, look, you couldn't have concealed the building of such a clever siege engine from the Trojans, and therefore such a cl clever siege engine didn't exist. And, and actually, the final argument that the people in this camp use is that they go back to Homer's account and Virgil's account of the story. And in both Homer and Virgil's account of the story, well, the wooden horse seems to somewhat, well, miraculously appear out of the mist or fog, fully formed and complete one day when Homer and Virgil start their story. And yes, they tell us who constructed the horse, the shipwright Apias, but they don't explain the process of the construction in any great detail and deal with the problem of how the Trojans didn't suspect something at that early stage. And well, the non-believers in this camp argue that's because neither Homer nor Virgil could come up with a plausible explanation. So all they did was, well, airbrush over that particular awkward bit in the story by simply having the horse appear in the plane and hope that those of us listening to the story wouldn't think the thing through too carefully. So that's critique number one inside of the mechanical logistical problem camp. And then they have a secondary critique. And that critique essentially goes like this. And the argument is that well, even if the Greeks had managed to build a structure of the necessary height to be higher than the skying gates and of the necessary strength and rigidity and structural integrity to hold a series of bronze armed warriors, 30 warriors or even 20 warriors or even 10 warriors, 
Well, that particular structure would have been high, towering, and exceedingly, exceedingly heavy. And these particular critics point out then that it would have been absolutely impossible to convey such a structure across the Trojan Plain. The Trojan Plain, the historical Trojan Plain, was at least a mile across between the Greek camp and the walls of Troy. And in our story, we often compacted that distance to make for an economy of plot and storytelling. But large sections of the Trojan Plain, we're also told, tended to be a little bit marshy or, or, or have soft, sandy ground. And moving a structure like that would have been, well, well nigh impossible. And these critics also then go on to point out that, well, there were no metals or, or techniques available inside of the Bronze Age, which would have allowed metal axles to have been constructed that could have borne the weight of that horse on wheels. And hence, the entire thing would have had to somehow have been dragged on wooden rollers greased with animal fat across the plain. And well, these non-believers say that it couldn't have been done and consequently the horse therefore could not have existed. End of story. Now, that's essentially one camp. And then let's get on to the other camp, the other sort of group of critics, if you will. And, and the people inside of this camp say that, well, the argument basically goes like this. Even the Trojans couldn't have been that stupid. No nation would have allowed that sort of a structure to be towed into the heart of its city without a much more thorough and effective examination than what was provided by the Trojans. And yes, 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 Odysseus is a great liar and Sinon is a great liar, etc., etc. But the truth of the matter is that nobody would have allowed such a horse into the city. Hence, such a horse didn't come into the city. And hence, something else must have been responsible for the destruction of Troy. And maybe it was called a Trojan horse, but it certainly wasn't a large wooden structure on wheels. And so the two basic arguments inside of this camp of non-believers go as follows. Argument number one is that, well, the thing that history is referred to as the wooden horse or the Trojan horse was actually nothing more than a wooden battering ram, a, a, a siege engine from the Bronze Age, if you will. And the, the critics inside of this camp point out that in other contemporary Bronze Age cultures, often they cite Assyrian culture, well, large siege engines and battering rams were a routine device used to, well, assault cities or to effect a breach inside of the walls of cities, and that what the Trojan horse was then was actually a huge wooden battering ram. And somehow that battering ram managed to batter or breach a gap inside of Troy's walls. Now, the really, really cool thing here is that, well, if you think about the Trojan wooden horse, well, we know from the Assyrian records of their battering rams that if, if, if your soldiers were slamming away trying to essentially break down a section of wall with a huge wooden battering ram, then the soldiers doing that battering required protection from well, the enemy soldiers trying to defend their city up in the walls and likely shooting down arrows and particularly fire arrows to set the structure on fire. So these siege engines were routinely protected or covered in soaking wet animal hides. And some people have argued that, well, maybe one of the animals used in the hides was horse. And so possibly this particular battering ram that battered against the gates or the walls of Troy was covered in wet horsehair hides. And that's how the story of the Trojan horse developed. And, and then other historians have pointed out that throughout military history, soldiers who were bored between fighting of often gone to work with with paint and and stenciled eyes or faces or images onto their particular weapons of destruction and and given them nicknames or things like that and 
The tradition existed in the Bronze Age and exists right up to contemporary warfare and soldiers, uh, you know, putting happy faces or angry faces onto the front of bomber airplanes and, and things like that. So, so possibly this battering ram had a nickname of the Trojan horse and who knows, it might have even had eyes painted onto it. So that's one theory of what the Trojan horse was, and it's a great theory. The only problem is, if you accept it, then of necessity you have to discount the prophecy which says that the walls of Troy will never be destroyed by an enemy force, because clearly then the walls of Troy were destroyed by an enemy's battering ram. Which brings me to my favorite of the theories of the the Trojans couldn't have been that stupid believer camp. And, and this theory or this hypothesis goes like this. This hypothesis argues that the walls of Troy were not destroyed by an enemy force, nor were the walls of Troy destroyed by the Trojans himself. And the reason I like this theory I'm going to explain to you so much is that I believe it does an absolutely wonderful, delicious job of, well, blending the contemporary archaeological evidence based on our ongoing excavations of the historical archaeological site of Troy with the storyteller's epic mythic evidence, which I presented to you in the previous 19 episodes of this story. So, for me to basically explain this theory to you, I have to beg your indulgence in a super-fast archaeological lesson. And here it is. The city of Troy, you can go visit the remains or the ruins of the city of Troy today. The city of Troy is ancient, and actually archaeologists, when they began to excavate Troy back in the 1800s and up to the present, soon discovered that the city of Troy isn't really one city, but actually a successive series of cities built one upon another, like layers in a very large layer cake. And and the reason for this is that at some stage in world history, and the evidence seems to suggest that that stage was about 1,000 years prior to King Priam's time, at some stage in history, some people occupied this particular site and built themselves a city, which we can assume they might have called Troy. And then some misadventure, either caused by human agency or by natural agency, destroyed that city. And and then someday in the future afterwards, some survivors or descendants or other people came along and they said, this looks like a great place for a city. Let's build a new one on top. So they kind of smoothed out and leveled over whatever remains were standing, likely used some of the remaining bricks and building materials from Troy 1, if you will. And on top of Troy 1, built their new city, which, well, now we archaeological refer to as Troy number 2. And so the process went on through history. Now, ladies and gentlemen, currently archaeologists have determined that there is a Troy 1 through 9, and they've even divided some of the numbers into versions of Troy 7A and 7B. So there's an awful lot of Troys all sandwiched up there on top of each other. And the debate right now seems to be on whether King Priam's Troy, the Troy of our Trojan War epic, is Troy number 6 or Troy number 7. Now, Troy number six was a wealthy, powerful, large city, and the archaeological record tells us that that Troy number six was destroyed in about 1250, which is one of the traditional dates of the destruction of the city of Troy. Now, the other theory about King Priam's Troy, just for your background, is that King Priam's Troy was actually a later city referred to now as Troy 7A. Now, Troy 7A was a much smaller and less wealthy city than Troy 6. And Troy 7A, the archaeological record tells us, was destroyed by warfare and fire on or about 1184 BCE. 
Curiously, another date which some scholars and historians state is the day that Troy actually fell. So here, history lesson and archaeological lesson in place is the cool hypothesis. The hypothesis is based on the idea that King Priam's Troy was Troy VI. And it is only a hypothesis, I caution you, but it basically goes like this. Troy VI, the archaeological record is quite certain, was not destroyed by human agency, but was rather destroyed by a very powerful earthquake. Now, let's go back and take a look at the mythic record. The deity who most wished to exact a revenge on the people of Troy was the god Poseidon. You'll recall that Poseidon wanted to exact that revenge because, well, he had built those walls of Troy some time earlier and had been ripped off by, well, Priam's dad, King Laomedon, who had refused to pay Poseidon for building the walls. So Poseidon at the time had decided on his revenge. Now, here's the interesting thing about Poseidon. Poseidon was referred to by both Greeks and by Trojans as the earth shaker god. Poseidon was the god associated in the Bronze Age world with earthquakes. Earthquakes were relatively common in this part of the Mediterranean world, and when a powerful earthquake hit a city, everybody inside assumed that the city had done something to offend Poseidon, the earth shaker god. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's put the final little clever delicious piece of the puzzle into place. As you well know from earlier episodes of this story, Every Olympian deity had their own symbolic animal attached to their name, and these show up inside of all of the classic paintings inside of the Renaissance of these Olympian deities, and they even show up back in the Bronze Age and, and, and Classical Age Greek sculptures and pottery and that sort of thing. So Zeus, king of the gods, is always depicted by an eagle. His wife Hera is always depicted as uh, by a peacock. Uh, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, is always depicted by an owl. And get ready for it, Poseidon. The earth shaker god is always depicted by a horse. And so, ladies and gentlemen, the horse that destroyed the walls of Troy, the Trojan horse, if you will, was actually Poseidon, the original builder of Troy's walls. And that's how this particular hypothesis goes. Now, following the devastating earthquake, which Poseidon, according to this hypothesis, sent, well, either the Greeks discovered that the walls of Troy had collapsed right away and they had hopped into their long ships and pirates that they were, they had sailed across the Aegean Sea and marched into what was left of the undefended city of Troy, now that the walls were down and the people were in shock after the earthquake, or, and here's another way that you can blend the mythic and the storytelling with the archaeology, or, following the devastating earthquake of Troy VI, the next generation of Trojans came back and rebuilt Troy 7A, a much more modest, small, and completely non-defended city. You can't build walls very quickly, particularly if you don't have a deity doing the heavy lifting for you. And then the Greeks from across the Aegean Sea, pirates that they were, realized that here was a city we can attack because it has no walls because the walls of Troy were destroyed about a century earlier by the earth shaker god, the Trojan horse god Poseidon himself. And so the Greeks had rolled across the Aegean in 1184 and set Troy 7a to flame and sword. 
And so there, ladies and gentlemen, are two possible hypotheses on what the Trojan horse might have been if you're not willing to accept Homer or Virgil's account of the story. Now, I'm going to conclude at this point, and I, I should just let you know before I go on that there are all kinds of multiple and clever storyteller accounts of exactly what the Trojan horse might have been. And, and as much as I'd really, really love to share them with you, I won't, because I think that my no-plot spoilers guarantee should well, extend to the works of original and creative fiction of other storytellers, too. And if you dive into one of these storytellers' novel accounts of the Trojan War epic, well, the story of the wooden horse isn't going to come to the end, and I don't want to ruin the fun for you by telling you what that particular author storyteller does with the wooden horse story inside of their own imagination. But I would commend you to my two current contemporary favorites, and I'm always changing my mind on this, but uh, the late Colleen McCullough in her novel The Song of Troy offers a rather twisted and curious version of the entire wooden horse incident, which I get great delight in reading, though it's not my own. And if you want to look at the most audacious and out there, but in a way kind of plausible explanation, then what you want to do is you want to go to the late David Gemmell's wonderful Troy trilogy, and it offers a complete surprise on what the Trojan horse actually turns out to be. So let's leave things there. You can make up your own mind on whether you want to believe the canonical account of Homer and Virgil, or if you want to be one of the doubters and the disbelievers and then pick up on your own particular theory. But it's time to say goodbye. You'll be wanting to get over to episode number 20, where we will find out finally what happens once that wooden horse with 30 Greeks in the belly actually makes it into the heart of the city of Troy. Have yourselves an awesome day. Talk to you again soon.